what we're going to do here in a sec, I'm going to invite up Tim Geddert, who like is kind of becoming like our New Testament uh, scholar, emeritus, I don't know, there's got <laughs> probably some kind of term for this. He's like our friend. Tim. <laughs> and yeah, he's Tim. So can we just welcome Tim real quick? That'd be great. So he actually joined us and preached like three or four Sundays ago, and then what we want to do is we're working through this series on Mark, and again, looking at the patterns of Jesus, is we just wanted to have more of a conversation today around Holy Week, around the cross, around uh, just a little bit of the life, but then the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And as we think about these ancient texts that are, you know, really thousands of years old, how does some of this, this stuff still like relate to our lives today? Why does this matter? Why, why, why do we do this? Why do we actually like, have imagery and icons to, to grab onto, to remember the things that have happened if it's not even relevant to us today? Like, why, how do we do this? So um, I thought it'd be fun to have a conversation with Tim. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to ask a couple questions to kind of warm up and, and tee him up here. And then want to invite all of you to ask questions. So Roman will end up taking this microphone from me here in a little bit. You'll raise your hand. He'll hold the mic in front of your face awkwardly. He will not let you grab it. Um, and then you'll say your question in as, in as you know, little as words as possible. And then uh, Tim will interact. Yeah? Is that like backhanded direct enough? Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> And then Tim will interact with you a little bit. And so we just want to open up Tim. Tim has spent a good amount of his life actually working in the book of Mark, which, which we've been in. Um, but the questions aren't limited to the book of Mark, by the way. Uh, but really, let's, like, let's stay in the theme of Holy Week and, again, the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, so with that, oh, and then what he's going to do is he's going to lead us in a time of communion. So when we finish up, um, then we'll all, you know, he'll give a little message and then we'll walk forward. We'll grab, take communion together uh, and enter back into worship. So let's start here. There's like this common phrase that I'm sure some of us has used in this room, if not all of us, at one point in our life. And we've probably said something like, along the lines of like, well, I guess this is just my cross to bear. Uh-huh. Uh, and it could be something big, like, like we really have heavy things that happen in life. Life. It could also be like, I got a flat tire on my car, well, I guess this is my cross to bear today, or something like that. Um, can you just say more around that phrase, and maybe the gap between what we oftentimes think it is, and maybe what it was to Mark? Sure. Uh, Jesus says in Mark 8, af- right after the first time he predicts with his disciples, that he's going to die. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, and f- deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He hasn't told them that he's going to die on a cross. So they must have understood something about the meaning of carrying a cross without knowing that Jesus was going to die on a cross. It, has, it must have a cultural meaning. It must have a political meaning. It must have some meaning. Fact is, they had seen lots of crucifixions. The Romans crucified rebels. The Romans crucified people who wanted to overthrow the government. Uh, Slave revolt was met with crucifixion. So crucifixion had a meaning before Jesus ever died on a cross. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, the way I understand that is that he would have expected them to imagine somebody carrying a cross and following somebody. That's, that's in their mind's eye. Well, we find out much later how it actually worked when Jesus carried his cross and followed someone. He followed the Roman centurion leading him to the place of execution while they were in front of him to lead him and behind him flogging him and driving him there. But Jesus did it voluntarily. And that, I think, is the central meaning of what he says in chapter 8. We're not going to be the kind of people who are forced by the political powers to be a certain way and to face whatever the consequences are. We're going to be people who choose a road that symbolizes we are not in rebellion against this kingdom that's on its way. So I think even before Jesus died on the cross, the symbolism of carry a cross and follow is I'm following as a servant of the king. But, of course, it's a completely different king. And Jesus then, when he dies on the cross, does that very thing. He precedes it with, not my will, but yours. He takes up his cross in obedience, not to some political 
shenanigans, but the will of God as revealed in Scripture. So we take up our cross by saying, not my will, but yours be done, whatever that may cost. And fortunately, we know where it leads because the cross is never the end of the road. It's always the stage toward the glory on the other side. So it, it does represent that which we wouldn't do naturally out of our own human desire for self-preservation, for our own wish for having a good, happy life. It's willingness to suffer, willingness to sacrifice, but never with this idea that it's just, well, it's just painful. Oh, I guess it's just the cross I bear. Like, the cross I bear is not whatever is painful in life. It's whatever represents following in God's will because we know where it leads and it's always worth it. So I think that's kind of... And then when Jesus dies on the cross, then that expression starts taking on meaning all over the place. And in, when Paul talks about it, it's I die daily. And then when Luke talks about it, he adds this meaning. When Mark talks about it, he adds more. Uh, I, I can face even the sense of the rejection of my heavenly father because I know that he's called me to walk through to victory on the other side. And so Jesus' own experience on the cross is way less victorious on the surface than, in, for example, in Luke. In Luke, it's, into your hands I commit my spirit. In John, it's, it is finished. And in Mark, it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, there's different ways that people experience what it means to say yes, no matter the cost. But in Mark, it's really clear, right from the very first prediction, the cross is on the road to resurrection. The disciples, of course, don't get it until way later. We'll talk about that later. Uh, so good. Yeah, that's, so that's a light way to start things. Um, I'd be curious, you just mentioned right there, you said there was a few different ways in which the gospel writers, so the four, you know, really the narratives of Jesus' life that captured the things that he did and who he was, uh, they all kind of had different things right. that they were writing about or saying. Right. And so when we think about the cross, and this is kind of a, a, a big church word or, you know, people spend a lot of their lives trying to figure this out, but we, we know them as atonement theories, like, why did Jesus actually have to die, or why did he die, or what did it do, those kind of things? I be, and I, from my understanding, there's like, like five, six, maybe seven primary atonement theories. Um, and again, as they're called theories, there, there's multiple. Yeah. Like, what's up with that? Whew, uh, how, many, how many hours did you say? No, we're doing it. <laughs> so so I... I've been thinking of three words this week a lot in thinking about what kind of questions I might be responding to, and they all start with M. There's mechanisms, and there's meaning, and there's mystery. And, and these three, I'm, I'm going to talk about that just a little bit. We often reduce the things we read about in the Bible to mechanisms. Like, how in the world could Jesus be totally human and totally divine at the same time? Well. Let's see, what, what mechanism would work? Well, what, what if he had a, a human mother and a divine father and was born with two natures? What we're doing is we're making a mechanism out of it. We're trying to figure out how God could ever figure this out. Wow, God's pretty smart. He figured out a mechanism that would make it work. That's not how this is. Like, God just says, I mean, he could have just beamed him down. Like, no problem. But this would be a meaningful way for us to understand who Jesus is. So we have a virgin birth by the power of the Spirit. Like, it's not a mechanism. It's the, it, it reveals meaning, and it never fully reveals the meaning, and that's why there's always more mystery left over after we've done our best to understand it. So that's my backdrop to atonement. So what's the mechanism by which it is possible for God to forgive sinners? That's the way it's sometimes approached. Okay, well, he's a holy God, so he has to demand justice. And he said that there's a penalty to pay, so we have to figure out who's going to pay the penalty. So if we pay the penalty, we're lost forever. So we've got to find a substitute to pay the penalty. But, but if I were to die for your sins, I'd have to be perfect, or else it's only for my sins. Like, well, couldn't count for yours, because this one has to die for mine. So humans can't die for humans, uh, but maybe God could die for humans. And, like, we've turned it into a mechanism. And I think it's way more a revelation of what this all means. I mean, God does use these things, but he uses them to help us understand that he's a loving God, that he's a self-sacrificing God, that he's a God who's willing to take the place of others. Like, it's not a mechanism that makes it work. It's 
a loving, forgiving God is going to reveal the heart of God to us in this way. Now, sometimes meaning and mechanism go together. If I look around and see a ring on somebody's hand, it kind of has a meaning. But that meaning is just invented. Like, you could have put a ring in the nose to mean the same thing, or you could have put a, a crown on your head, could have meant the same. Like, cultures and people just decided that this kind of a ring on this kind of a finger at this particular place, it means this. Like, it's just meaning. It's not mechanisms. But what about a kiss? Is that all about, well, somebody just decided that when two people's lips touch each other, that means this. Well, yeah, it's about the meaning, but it's kind of a mechanism too, because if it's supposed to mean intimacy, it, well, it kind of is intimacy. Like, meaning and mechanism can't always be completely separate. I mean, that's a bad example. You're supposed to be thinking about atonement now. Uh, <laughs> so in Scripture, there's a lot of this, where the mechanism and the meaning kind of flow together. And what we often do is we create theories and we create doctrines, and what we're doing is we're stripping it of the mystery, we're defining the mechanism. And then what ends up happening is we fight about it because, you see, my theory is better than your theory. And so I think when Jesus died on the cross, all sorts of things were happening. But the meaning depends on all sorts of things that had already happened. God had decided to dramatically show Israel, his people, in the Old Testament that they were not supposed to practice what the pagan nations were practicing, which was child sacrifice. So how did he demonstrate that? He asked Abram to sacrifice his son. And at the last minute he says, no, stop, I'm providing the substitute. And we get a lot of that in the Old Testament where the substitute takes the place because God has decided not to demand the punishment that would have been a reasonable punishment for sin, by providing the substitute. So the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament is backdrop to what happens on the cross. Now, it's not a mechanism in, in, this, in a strict logical sense, but it, it helps understand a good bit of the meaning of what went on when Jesus dies for us. He's the offering that God provides that takes our place. So almost all the Atonement theories are called substitutionary atonement theories. Like, Jesus paid a penalty I couldn't pay. Jesus won a victory I couldn't win. Jesus uh, freed me from slavery, which I couldn't bring about myself. Like, so God leads Israel out of Egypt. God did it for them. Well, Jesus' death leads us out of another kind of slavery. So each of these theories, they sort of pick up different elements of that. And those that focus mostly on penalty or even God's wrath, they're going to focus it one way. And those that talk about victory over the enemy, they're going to focus it another way. And then we create titles like substitutionary atonement and penal satisfaction and ransom theory and Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, and, and all these kinds of things. I worry that when we fixate on one theory, number one, we way reduce it down to just one thing. I worry that we make it a mechanism as though, fortunately, God was clever enough to figure out a way to make it work. That's, that's not how we should be thinking about it. We should be thinking about it as, how is God going to dramatically encounter us and reveal his desire to love and forgive and transform? And so God chooses to act among us in, and, and then to help us understand the meaning. But if there's no mystery left over, then, then, when, then, we've, then we've gone way overboard in thinking we can get it all figured out. Does that help at all? I mean, I'm not actually a fan of any of the theories. I am a fan of all the wonderful stories told in scripture, all the imagery that it evokes, all the backdrop in, in God's dealings with, with Israel first and then in Jesus and then with us. And so we get glimpses of how it transforms people because we encounter this living, loving, forgiving God. And then out of these images, we tell stories. Like, for example, I'll just get to Mark real quick. How does Mark give this impression that Jesus' death was a substitute? Well, pretty easy. Barabbas was supposed to be hanging on that middle cross. And the crowd comes along and says, hey, just let's release Barabbas and put Jesus on that cross instead. And so Mark tells the story of Jesus taking the place of Barabbas and 
And we look and say, oh, yeah, that's kind of what happens for every one of us. We all deserve to be on that cross in the middle, and Jesus took our place, and the one who deserved it was set free. I remember talking about this in class one time, and all of a sudden something just struck me. Anyone know what the name Barabbas means? Son of the Father. Son of the Father. So Bar is the word son, and Abba. Now, that's Aramaic, and Mark's writing Greek, so you can't put a Aramaic pun in a Greek text, can you? You can if you first tell your readers what bar means, and then you tell them what Abba means, and then you spring the pun on them. So that's what Mark does. The Bartimaeus story, he tells us what bar means. His name was Bartimaeus. That means son of Timaeus. And then he goes to Gethsemane. He says, so Abba, and he translates father. So he tells us what bar means and tells us what Abba means. And then he gets to the Barabbas story, and here we have Jesus, the one who's just said, not my will, but yours, the obedient son of the father, takes the place of the disobedient son of a different father. It's, 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 it's Mark. He, he tells stories. He drops hints. He helps us catch glimpses. But Mark isn't going to say, uh, there's five atonement theories out there. The one that I favor is this one, and here's why. And, and if you don't, then you should go change denominations. Mark isn't into that at all. Paul isn't either, by the way. So good. Um, so I wanna, I'm going to ask one more, and then I want to open it up. And maybe I could have done this one first to ease into a question like atonement theory, but I, was, I wanted to hear it, so that was my selfish question for the day. Uh, and I would love to continue. Yeah, anyways, Mark is like the shortest book. Yep. If we take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And... Then even when we talk about like his story of essentially Holy Week, like the, the, the chapters he dedicates to it seems quite less than the other books in regard to like he does this whole thing and then everything happens pretty quickly, yep. like Jesus' death and all that stuff. Did he have less to say than the other writers? So first of all, his percentage-wise, his is the longest because and his book is so short that when you, when you have a little shorter passion, it's... A little shorter, but it's still longer percentage-wise, so it, it is fairly long. The reason why the others are so long is because of the long discourses. So Matthew has two long chapters on end times with multiple parables inside of his passion story. Uh, Luke has a bunch of parables there. John has four chapters of Jesus talking, like chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, but I don't even remember what each one is right now, but 14 is mostly dialogue with his disciples, and then 15 is about the vine, and 16 is about the comforter who's going to come, and 17 is the prayer, high priestly prayer. So his is longer because you've got all these long discourses. But if you just take the narratives, I don't think Mark is shorter. I think it's pretty comparable. Uh, he'll focus on different things. Uh, he'll emphasize you know, certain aspects of Jesus. Especially strong in Mark is that the disciples don't get it, until they start to get it, and that's when they start running away because they're just not on the right wavelength yet. Uh, that's really strong, really strong conflict theme between Jesus and the Jerusalem leaders and the temple authorities and, uh, and to some extent the Roman politicians. So the, the conflict theme is real strong in Mark. So I think he, was, he had just as much material to work with, and he did include just, I think, just as much, but in a different way with a different emphasis. Okay, good. Um, Roman's going to take the mic. Again, he'll hold it. Uh, walk safely if you go up on the platform. And yeah, just like honestly, whatever questions you have, um, however applicable to your life they can be, I think the better here. Um, so feel free to ask and just, yeah, keep it in a couple sentences and go from there. So my understanding is the oldest texts of Mark don't have like the last bit of the last chapter. Right. Why does he end his story with confusion? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I have lots of thoughts on that. I think Mark has all along the way focused on uh, dropping hints that there's more to the story than is going to be obvious on the surface. And, and as we start to track with that, we start noticing more and more and more. And I'm going to share a bit more of that when we get to communion. Uh, so, Whatever it looks like on the surface, that's probably only part of the story. There's probably a lot more going on. When I read that ending, first of all, how does Mark end? 
if we assume the last 12 verses were not originally there. If you check your Bibles, any Bible with footnotes, study Bible, it'll clearly tell you the last 12 verses of Mark are missing from all the oldest manuscripts. So I'm not making this up. Okay? Uh, what do you do with it is the next question. Some people think he did write more, but it got lost. And some think he wanted to write more, but maybe he was martyred. Or a few people think he actually wrote those 12 verses and they were missing and lost and found and reattached. And, but most people, like including myself, believe that Mark intended to end his gospel with the messenger at the tomb telling the women, go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, they fled from the tomb because they were afraid. That's it. So no resurrection appearances in Mark. Ends on confusion is one way to read it. The way I read it is this. Jesus, uh, Mark, tells the whole story of disciples following Jesus all the way to Jerusalem and running away in the garden. The entire story never once hints that there were any women. There were only men that we know of the way Mark tells the story, unlike the other Gospels. Until Jesus dies on the cross, and then suddenly Mark, in about two verses, tells the other half of the story. Oh, by the way, there were many women there who had followed all the way from Galilee and served his needs. Like, oh, this whole story included both men who couldn't understand and ran away, and women who followed faithfully and served all the way to the cross and were there and didn't run away. And at that point, those of us men interpreting this text say, what in the world are you doing, Mark? This is a story about faithful men and un uh, sorry, unfaithful men and faithful women. That's the gospel? Like, but he's not finished his story yet. Just before the men ran away, Jesus said, you will all fall away, but I'm going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see me. And then they run away. And now the women follow to the cross, to the tomb, and just before they run away, the messenger says, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him. And then they fail. They fail to carry out the message. They fail to respond in faith, because in Mark, fear is always the opposite of faith. So the men fail to stay with Jesus, and the women fail to tell the story, and both of them are invited, go back to Galilee and meet Jesus all over again. In other words, we fail, but Jesus has already offered us a new beginning. And Mark imagines his readers hearing this story and saying, so how did I fail? And we all can think of lots of ways that we fail. Did I fail to stay with Jesus? Did I fail to tell the story? However I failed, the promise to them is a promise to me. I can meet Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, all over again, and he'll give me a new start. We follow again. And I think it's kind of a brilliant ending. In fact, if you look at it from another angle, it goes like this. The first half of Mark is peppered with this word immediately. We talked about that last time, I think. Immediately this, and immediately this, and immediately this. Like half a gospel where half of the New Testament uses of the word immediately show up. And then you have three chapters which slow the pace considerably because it's a journey to Jerusalem. When you get to Holy Week, he paces off Every single day. We know what happens Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So notice the pace immediately, a journey, every single day. When you get to 6 p.m. Thursday, we know what happened every three-hour block for 24 hours in Mark. In the evening, this. At midnight, this. When the rooster crowed, this. At dawn, this. They crucified him. It was darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Like, he paces us through three. And when we get to the tomb, it stops. And the reader is the only one left at the tomb when all the women run away yet, too. And it's like we're standing there saying, okay, what's next? And Mark says, it's up to you. Like, we pick up the story where Mark lays down his pen. And I think that's the way Mark designed it. So it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant ending. 
but it's puzzled a lot of people. And so that's my best attempt to figure out what I think is going on. And uh, I'm not nearly alone. There's lots of people who read it that way. I'm just curious how, um, if I'm understanding this, I'm atonement and being saved, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about atonement, right? Yeah. That's, um, what is, I'm, I'm a, I guess I'm a mechanism kind of thinker, is what I'm, when I'm listening to you, I'm like, I have a lot of, that's what I try to rationalize things. Um, so, what qualifies as atonement, I guess, is my question. Right. Can an atheist have atonement? Do you have, you have, because my understanding is you have to have some kind of belief, but belief can be, gosh, you can have a zealot, you can have somebody who just struggles to believe. Uh, can you maybe explain how Sure. Atonement. Um, there's going to be quite I a bit of mystery. works. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a, quite a bit of mystery left after I try and answer because believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the basic message of the New Testament. And some people say believe that the atonement works like this and you will be saved. And I say well, that seems like it's going a little farther than the initial statement. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but believe whatever you want about Jesus. Well, that doesn't count either. It's like. How, how right do we have to get the story before it counts as believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's where I say, number one, God looks at the heart. Number two, we're commissioned to preach the gospel, so we do the best we can to explain what the gospel is. We call people to faith. People who respond, God is the one who looks in the hearts. And like we're saved by putting our faith in the person of Jesus and in the fact that God chose to offer us forgiveness if we will trust in Jesus for it. Beyond that, it's we try to understand the best we can. Uh, we don't ever claim to fully understand. Uh, and I don't know how, how right you have to be before God says that's good enough. I mean, I think that a four-year-old who understands that Jesus loves me can begin a relationship with Jesus already. But So, yeah, I just... I'm real nervous about, like I've heard people say, if you don't believe in penal satisfaction theory of the atonement, then you're not saved because that's how you're saved by believing, by figuring out how the atonement works. It doesn't feel that way to me when I read the New Testament. But it's a debatable point. I know this. People get kicked out of their pulpits and seminary classrooms for believing wrongly about these topics wrongly. Okay, uh, so, whoa, that's hot. Hey, um, so maybe not particularly to Mark, um, and have experienced this in my own journey of faith, uh, whether you, how you choose to answer um, will be blessed with the direction you take your answer. But I, I'm just wondering for some of us, and maybe even for some in the room, when there's the intellectual understanding of my creator, my savior, uh, my comforter, my guide, Jesus, but yet there is no mm, tangible relationship. In other words, I feel very distant from God. I don't doubt you, God, but yet I'm not sure if you're really there. Does that, does that make sense? What, what, would, what would be, yeah, what's some encouragement, something from Mark maybe or from other scriptures that would speak to maybe the believer that's in that situation and wrestling with, yeah, the, 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 again, the intellectual understanding that my creator is my savior as well, but yet I'm just not feeling you at this time. I'm not sure if you're even there. Okay, well, let me start by saying there are some people 
who one day feel close to God and another day feel far from God, and it kind of goes back and forth. My starting point is they don't gain their salvation one day and lose it the next and gain it again and lose it the next. Like Feeling close to God isn't an adequate marker of whether you are or are not in a reconciled relationship with God. It's, that's a feeling. So uh, people who would be worried that, oh, maybe there is no God, or maybe there, like, be honest with your feelings. But don't look back on your life and say, you know, I was unsaved half my life and saved half my life, and it kept going back and forth because I didn't always feel it. Like, feelings are not an adequate guide to knowing what the scriptures teach us about the fact that God doesn't abandon us when we don't feel God. Uh, even Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't God didn't ultimately forsake anybody, ultimately. But there are valleys to walk through where we're not sure we feel God. So I would, I would, I would encourage us as a community to support each other when we feel far from God, to uh, not scold each other when that happens, but rather stand with each other, uh, acknowledge that it happens to the saints throughout the ages. People talk about the dark night of the soul and, you know, extended periods of just not knowing the presence of God and so on. That's when we support each other, help each other, and we encourage ourselves and each other not to assume that God's changed. Okay. Um, so I... We've talked about the palm branches and Jesus entering Jerusalem. You know, this whole concept of Holy Week going from that time all the way up to Good Friday when Jesus is sac uh, when he dies on the cross. Um, say like as a new believer or as someone who maybe doesn't quite understand, okay, well, what is the whole point of this? Like what, um, Maybe I can understand intellectually what is Holy Week, but really, how does it apply to me? Like, what should be my takeaway when I come to church and I hear you guys talking about Holy Week and Jesus entering Jerusalem, going to the cross, and, you know, we're celebrating this time here together. Really, what should be, um, what's something maybe from Mark or from all the Gospels, but how would you explain to me asking that question, like, so what? Like, what? Yeah. Like, maybe I don't quite understand all this. Like, what should I really be taking away about why is Holy Week important or why are we talking about this? Or Sure. Okay. So in, in preparation for this morning, because I wasn't quite sure what was going to be coming, I, I went through my files and I found a sermon I preached 10 years ago called Eight Days That Changed the World. And I just reread my script from, from that. And I was surprised to see that I had preached a sermon that wasn't about Mark or Matthew or Luke or John. It was about what happened that week. And so, how do we know what happened on Sunday of that week? Well, we checked the four Gospels. And how do we know what happened on Monday? Well, we checked the four Gospels. So there were references in my sermon to things that I learned from Matthew and some from John and some from Mark and some from Luke. Now, some people preach that way all the time. I hardly ever do. So it was, it was unique for me. But it was good. I mean, they're both valid. They're both completely valid. We want to understand what happened and what it means. That's one way to approach it. And the other way is to approach it is, let's see if we can learn a certain lesson that Mark wants us to grasp about the meaning of it. And now let's learn from Luke. Like, there's more than one way to do it. So if we want to learn the meaning of palm branches, it's marvelous. But you wouldn't find that in Mark, because Mark doesn't even tell us there were palm branches. There were leafy branches, okay? So Mark wasn't choosing to emphasize the meaning of the symbol of palm branches. That's Luke and Matthew and John. So it's totally the right thing to do on Palm Sunday, but it's a different way to do it. So you're asking a question of, so what does it all mean? At that point, I would probably step back from Mark and say, well, not Mark focuses on this, but the larger story from a, from a, from a bird's eye view, looking down on it, goes something like this. If Jesus hadn't done what he did, said what he said, and experienced what happened in those eight days, first of all, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus at all. In fact, the story would probably go something like this. There was some popular movement for a little while 
led by a guy who was credited with lots of miracles, not unusual, lots of other people were credited with lots of miracles in his day. We thought he might be the deliverer, but the Romans got him in the end, and uh, his followers dispersed. What was his name again? Doesn't matter. That's kind of that would have been in the story. By the end of the first century, nobody would have ever heard of him. But those eight days changed the world. And what happened Easter Sunday only makes sense because of what happened on Friday. And Friday only makes sense because of what happened on Thursday. And Thursday only makes sense because of what happened on Sunday. And all the way, like, it's a narrative of the eight days that bring to its incredible conclusion this whole life and ministry and proclamation and example of somebody who's claiming the unimaginable. God is establishing God's reign over the world through me. That's basically his message. Everybody's saying, okay, when are you going to get rid of the Romans? He says, well, I'm not. Well, I'm going to teach you to love your enemies. Wait, that's not, that's not your job. Your job, if you're the Messiah, your job is to get rid of the Romans. No. Different kind of kingdom manifest in these ways, and I'm going to die for it. So the whole story only kind of makes sense in the larger context of the proclamation of God's kingdom by Jesus and all the things he did to explain it, to demonstrate it, to inaugurate it. So he enters Jerusalem, and they're celebrating him as though he's about to get rid of the Romans, and he's got tears in his eyes. Mark doesn't tell us that. Luke does. Because this isn't supposed to be a victory parade. This is a protest against the way the world sets up kingdoms. So it's a donkey and not a war horse. And it's from a text that says God's anointed will bring peace not through the sword and the spear but by breaking the chariots and making pruning hooks out of the spears. So it's a protest. He risks everything in the temple when he takes on buyers and sellers and priests and Roman, like, they would have killed him right on the spot if he hadn't been that popular. Like, everything that happens that whole week leads to what he himself has told his disciples multiple times is coming. I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem. He knows it. He's voluntarily going on a road that he knows leads to it. Why? Because he knows that it leads to resurrection. So, like, you, you need the whole week to understand the whole life, and you need Easter Sunday to make sense of the whole story. So, there's... there's so, if you want to make it real simple, Jesus loved us so much that even though his message of love was going to be rejected and he was going to be killed for it, he was willing to do it because he knew that God would overturn the verdict of the human courts. So, maybe that still needs to be simplified. I mean, if, but that's kind of the, in a nutshell, I think what I would... Um, so let's do this. I'll be mindful of time. <clears throat> I'd love for us to go into communion together. Uh, I guess just one, one question that lives, and we kind of got to in the very beginning, um, not you know, intending for this, but you named some of the ways in which, like, who Jesus was following. He was following the centurion. We talked about, like, the Roman leader. Who killed Jesus, and why does that matter today? Okay, there's a long history of anti Semitism hatred towards Jews, because a couple of texts, especially from Matthew and John, have led people to conclude the Jews killed Jesus. In fact, the Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans killed Jesus. Now, the Romans killed Jesus because Israel was divided in their response to Jesus. So you can't lay it on. An, it's not about ethnicity. It's about do we or don't we use the method of killing people who are in the way of our own beliefs, our own uh, prosperity, our own way of running the world? Are we on the side of those who kill to preserve it, or are we on the side of those willingly sacrificing ourselves for God's kingdom? And Israel was divided. Some followed Jesus. Some put him to death. So, but they didn't do it. They got the Romans to do it. So you can't say the, the the Jews were all innocent and the Romans were all guilty. That would be completely wrong. It was some of the Jews and some of the Jews, for and against, 
Who won? <laughs> I mean, depends how we read the story, right? Uh, they got him dead. <laughs> but they experienced the resurrected Jesus. Like, uh, the whole book of the first five or six chapters of Acts is all about who inherits the legacy of the whole story of the Old Testament, the people of God. Who are the people of God? And we simplify the story by saying, well, it wasn't the Jews because they got rid of Jesus. It's the Gentiles because they took it over instead. That's, that's completely wrong in every possible way. The entire early church was Jewish. And it stayed that way for 20 years. Like, this is not about Jew versus Gentile. This is about Israel was divided and the Gentile world has been divided ever since. Okay? It's not about ethnicity. Are you for or are you against Jesus? So the ones who are against Jesus managed to figure out how to recruit the help of the Romans to kill Jesus. And so, but on the other hand, God uses the worst that humans can do to bring about God's purposes. So there's a sense in which God's hand was in it right from the start. Now, we have to be very cautious that we don't say, God killed Jesus. Like, that, that, that makes a new mechanism that distorts the story as well. But God chose to use what God knew humans would do for our salvation. So let me introduce communion by picking up something I alluded to before. Just before Jesus' last three days of that week, he's addressing his disciples on how they should live in the time period after the resurrection, until he comes back again. So Mark's gospel doesn't just say, well, I hope you're going to believe in a resurrection. He, it tells us in chapter 13, yes, after the resurrection, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. So we know from Mark that Jesus rose, that Jesus appeared to his disciples, that they were transformed, etc., etc. But the way Mark ends that chapter, Mark 13, is like this. He's telling his disciples what it means to be faithful throughout the entire period of time until he comes back again. He says, it's like a man going away, referring to himself, of course. He leaves his house in charge of his servants and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. 
It's going to be gone. We don't know how long. Our job in the meantime is faithfulness. We have no clue how long this will be. Turns out it's been over 2,000 years. So what's our job? Be faithful until he comes back. But then he ends it like this. You do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. So think about these. Evening, midnight, rooster crowing, dawn. They're dividing the night into four periods. Now, Israel is close to the equator, so how long is the night? 12 hours. Here it's somewhere between 9 and 15, right? Depending on the time of year. Where I grew up in Canada, it's somewhere between 3 and 21. Go to the North Pole, it's either 0 or 24. Like, the Romans divided the night into four three-hour blocks. And they called them evening, midnight, rooster crow, dawn. So what Jesus is saying is, be faithful no matter when he comes back. Could be here, could be here, could be here, could be here. Of course, he could come back in the daytime too, but it stands symbolic for any time at all. And then Mark does something amazing. He tells us the passion story as almost a theatrical production with four acts. We're in a theater here now, so we can visualize this. Four acts. The first one takes place when? In the evening. Second one takes place when? At midnight. Then when the rooster crows, and then at dawn. Now, some of you know the Gospel of Mark well enough to track with me already. But So when does the Lord's Supper take place? The Last Supper in Mark. Mark introduces it in chapter 4, 14, verse 17 with, in the evening. It's exactly the same word. Same word that he just used to name the first watch of the night. When does the Gethsemane episode happen? Turns out it happens at midnight. I'll tell you in two minutes why I say that. The next scene, Peter denies Jesus. And when does that happen? When the rooster crows. And the very first word of chapter 15 is at dawn. It gets translated differently in different translations, but it's the same word he used in chapter 13. So, in the evening, the Lord's Supper. At midnight, Gethsemane. When the rooster crowed, denying Jesus. And at dawn, the final trial, the mockery, and the crucifixion. Why does Mark do this? Because in each of these four watches, he's going to do a contrast. In the evening, Jesus offers his life for his disciples. This this is my body. This is my blood. And Judas sells him for money. The betrayer is revealed. Sacrifice self for others. Sacrifice Jesus for my own personal gain. That's the contrast there. What's the contrast in Gethsemane? Stay here and keep watch. What do they do? Sleep. When the soldiers come, strike with the sword. When it gets dangerous, run away. What does Jesus do? Not my will, but yours be done. What's the contrast when the rooster crows? Jesus is on trial in the courtroom, and Peter's on trial in the courtyard. And he denies Jesus, and Jesus is faithful to the message. And what's the contrast at dawn? Well, first of all, the disciples are nowhere to be found. And Jesus is still faithfully there. And the whole religious establishment kills him to preserve the status quo. And he goes willingly to bring about God's kingdom. All four watches are about the contrast between Jesus being faithful and everybody else failing in every possible way that you can fail. So how do we know that the second watch is at midnight? If each of them is three hours, in the evening, six to nine, Jesus says, couldn't you keep watching with me for one hour? How many times does he say that? Exactly three. Three times, one hour. That means when Jesus says, the hour has come, it's midnight. Of which night? 
Passover night. That's what they've just celebrated. They've just eaten their Passover meal. Midnight, Passover night. What happened at midnight, Passover night in the Old Testament? Israel was delivered from Egyptian slavery because the angel of death came. And now Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. So Mark has just loaded his whole passion story with the dramatic contrast between a faithful Jesus and the unfaithfulness of everybody around him. And right in the very center, it says, this is how salvation is possible. Because God is not coming to destroy with the angel destroyer all those who deserve death. He's coming to be the sacrificial lamb who dies for the sins of the world so that everybody who failed can be given salvation and a new beginning. And that's why the ending is the way it is. You all failed, but you're invited to begin again. And that's a message not for people who have never met Jesus. These are people who were with him, who were following him, and they messed up and were given the chance to follow once more. So as we take communion, I want that to be sort of the central focus of our thoughts today. I don't deserve this. I never could deserve this. But I don't have to deserve this because Jesus offers it freely knowing that I mess up and knowing that I'm going to keep on messing up and he's going to keep on giving me forgiveness and new beginnings. So we rejoice in the wonderful love and forgiving, self-sacrificing work of Jesus. And it gives us the strength to begin again. So as you take communion, that's what I want us to think about.